Hello, it's Patrick with the Film Editing Podcast at www.filmediting.com. We're back. Yes, another podcast is upon us. I'm sorry to Mitch for not getting this podcast out sooner. We actually did this interview last year, and I know a lot of you uh, sent in questions, which we did include in the interview, and they're all there. So without further ado, here's my interview with film editor Mitch Danton. Hey everyone, how's it going? This is Patrick here. I'm here with Mitch Danton, editor extraordinaire, Emmy Award winner, Ace Eddie Award winner. Mitch, how's it going? It's going good, going good. Glad to be here. Love to talk editing. Excellent. So where'd you grow up, Mitch? I grew up in uh, the Hollywood Hills, was born in Burbank. L.A. native, one of the few and the proud. Yeah, usually run into everyone from somewhere else in Los Angeles. That's but right. Now, my parents came out here in, like, late 40s, early 50s. Did they come out here to get into Hollywood? or what? Yeah, what my uh, both my parents were actors originally. My father, Ray Danton, he came out in the early 50s. He was in a film called The Longest Day, George Raft Story, Rise and Fall, Legs Diamond. Uh, my mom, Julie Adams, she came out here in the late 40s, was under contract at Universal for seven years. Wow. She did a film called Ben of the River with Jimmy Stewart. She did Mississippi Gambler with Tyrone Power. And most famous, uh, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. She played the lovely Kay Classic. Uh, in the white bathing suit that many people may remember. Yeah, both your parents were quite lookers there. They were, they yeah, were good looking uh, uh, cats. If I was a little better looking, maybe I'd be on the other <laughs> side of the camera. So, uh... What made you want to get into film? And specifically, what made you want to get into editing? Well, my father, after his acting career wound down, he became a television director. When I was probably about 11 years old, he was directing a feature called Psychic Killer. I visited the editing room one weekend, and they were doing some scene where a very hot woman got burned to death in the shower. <laughs> and I, and it, was pretty, it was pretty cool. And uh, actually, I believe the editor was multiple Emmy winner Michael Brown who who won another Emmy for Burying My Heart at Wounded Knee and wow. uh, also won an Emmy I believe for Something the Lord Made. He was my dad's editor and I hung out and started getting into it and then down the road unfortunately my parents split up so I ended up spending weekends with my dad and the weekends and the film days the directors were in the editing rooms <laughs> over at Universal so I spent a lot more time over there just observing the editing process and Got interested at that point. They were cutting even TV shows on film. We right? were on. They were on 35 millimeter film. Yeah. They were on Editors Row at Universal, and uh, yeah. it was a lot of fun. I mean, all the editors were really nice to me, and my old man thought it all went together like butter, you know. And uh, they were like, <laughs> "No, you know, there's a little bit more to it than that," you know. So, uh, so that's how you got in. Was he he helped introduce you people that kind of hired you? And and what did you start? What was your first job? Kind of starting out. My first job was at a place called Lejeune Films on something called The Alchemist with Robert Ginty, which was sort of a low-budget horror film. Uh, Lejeune did trailers. They did the trailer for Mad Max. It was one memorable that obviously yeah. was a big one. But So I was the apprentice editor and was credited on uh, that film, The Alchemist, and I was 18 years old. Wow. Yeah. Right out of high school. Right out of high school. Uh, didn't go to college. Tried to sort of break into the film business and... Uh, was fortunate enough to at least get exposed to it on that film. That's something I want to talk about, too, because lots of people want to ask questions, and a lot of them about getting into film. A couple people in, in particular recently wrote me about going to school later. I mean, they're in film school now in their 30s. You went back to film school. Yeah, I graduated high school in 1981, worked in the business to try and crack the Editor's Guild, 
and eventually got into the guild. Like, God, it's hard. I can't remember. But I got into the guild in the early 80s, shortly after I graduated high school. And then in 1986, I went back to USC and then eventually got into the film school probably in 1988. So that's, that's what happened. So I took about five years off from going to college. And when I realized that I'd have to take all my SATs again if I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go back right away, I decided now was the time to make the jump back into uh, college life. And I was very fortunate to get into USC with my high school record. I don't know if I will get in today, <laughs> but those were uh, different times. So did you know you wanted to go back into editing, or did you have something else you wanted to... It was interesting. I sort of uh, aspired to write. I guess I'm a failed writer, <laughs> like, like many uh, storytellers in the editing field. Um, so Everyone's I did. Uh, I wrote a couple scripts when I was in college. But it was interesting. When I got back out, Barney Rosenzweig, who sort of helped me get in the union, was the executive producer on Cagney and Lacey. Patrick knows Barney. Uh, <laughs> Basically, uh, Barney's got a couple Emmys, I think, for best drama from the Cagney and Lacey days. And just by chance, between when Cagney and Lacey, you know, shut down in the late 80s and when I got out in 1990, he had another show called Trials of Rosie O'Neill where I met Patrick. And then um, I basically leapt back into assistant editing where I kind of left off when I uh, ventured back into college. And during that time, I wrote some scripts at night and things like that. But as time went on, um, most of my breaks just kept falling in post-production. So that's where I headed and uh, became my area of expertise. I've told that story before, but that was the first job I had right out of college was was Rosie O'Neill. I was a, a post-PA running around town for... Uh for that show. That was a lot of fun. That's right. Patrick was always a natural. He had a lot of natural <laughs> talent and uh, it's I paid off drive that car. Years, but uh, <laughs> he had a great sense for editing even back in the 1990 or so. Oh, well, thank you. But we're here to talk about you. So uh, I'll try to hit some questions now and again from, from listeners as we go. And there's one that I was interested in asking, which was from Robert. He saw that you have edited Dawson's Creek and also Kill Point which is more of an action vein, and he wanted to know how, how it is going back and forth between uh, between those different genres. Is that difficult? Is that at all jarring for you, or do you like that? Yeah, I think the, the hardest thing is in sort of jumping genres, but also, I mean, every producer you work for, every director you work for, every studio I've worked for seems to have a different sensibility in terms of editing, I mean, I think there are certain things that, you know, you always try to do in terms of keeping it smooth and pacing it. And um, with action, you know, I just really try to make it exciting and dramatic at the same time, simultaneously. I mean, that was sort of the goal on Survivor when I, I cut a number of Survivor games over the years. And those were just sort of long, unwieldy kind of 30-minute games, sometimes with multiple rounds that we had to compress in about six minutes of very intense action, some of them. And um, so I tried to apply that, you know, to dramatic stuff, too, and that just sort of giving a shape and a structure to action, which I think is, is key, whereas the dialogue tends to drive comedy and the nighttime soaps that I've worked on mm-hmm. are primarily dialogue-driven, where action... Sometimes there's a lot of takes with different options, and you have to sort of craft 
what you think is the best way to tell that scene. Do you attack them differently when you get the scenes? Yeah, an action scene usually I mean they I tend they tend to start out long because I really try and play all the most exciting shots and then as I weave it into the movie I try to get a sense of how long it should play and compress it into just the real gold and jewels of of mm-hmm. the action scene. And in Kill Point there's a great bank robbery which started out probably around five minutes that ultimately came down to about three when it aired just because that's what felt right and dramatically correct. What was your first official editing gig? My first official editing gig was also through Barney Rosenzweig, who, if I can recommend anyone to have sort of someone avuncular <laughs> that's just sort of believes in you, even when you don't believe in yourself, you know, I hope, I think everyone that gets into this business or has success in any profession has a few people along the way that you know, believed in them or helped them out. And Barney gave me my first editing break on a show called Christie starring Kelly Martin. It was a Western that I cut in 1994. And after that point, were you able to stay mostly in editing? Yeah, it was in, it was interesting phenomenon because a lot of people bounce back and forth. Mm-hmm. And um, I was determined to never assist again. <laughs> I just, and I was, I was an okay assistant, a pretty good assistant, but not a great assistant. And, my strength was I would stay late and edit scenes and just sort of help out the editor in ways that, you know, some assistants don't. Some assistants sort of see their assistant chores as their assistant chores, and they do that, and they go home. And I would always try and manage the assistant work as best as possible. But I was assisting on 90210, and we would get Saturday dailies, so I would cut Saturday dailies so the editor didn't have to come in on Saturdays, which <laughs> he was stoked. And as time went on, my scenes got better. But I never got my break at spelling, but Barney called me up, got me on Christie. I cut a season of that, and that was a great show because it was well-written with good acting and, you know, Western, great locations. And then, basically, I was out of work for probably six months. I was fortunate enough that I, I have a SAG card, so I, <laughs> I did some extra work. And I uh, did some stand-in work, but I did not want to go back and assist. Yeah. And I was fortunate that I didn't have a lot of overhead, so I was able to just kind of hang out, eat craft service. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry, weren't you in Down Periscope? Yeah, I have you a few were. minor acting roles. Yeah, that's right. I'm fortunate enough that my, my brother works in production, so he and a couple of his friends were able to keep me afloat <laughs> during the lean times. But uh, as advice to anyone who doesn't have, maybe have those types of connections, I would say, there's a lot more editing opportunities today than there were when I was starting out. I mean, there's reality, which is a big genre that didn't really exist. Um, there's a lot more channels, you know, there's cable. There's Whereas when I was starting out, there was really just, you know, the main networks and Fox was like a big deal at that point. And so there was only maybe 30, 40 shows tops, and that's 100 editing jobs. And when you have one credit... It's yeah. a tough sled the first few years. So, but I did, I was determined never to assist again, and it paid off for me. And other people, uh, you know, might starve to death with the same plan. <laughs> so I don't know if it works for everyone. And um, but that was, I'm sort of a stubborn person, and that was what I tried. And thank God it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the question I get most from people. I know Vicky in in the UK. She's very young. She's 16. She's uh, wants to get into editing, and she want to know if there's any ways she can get her foot in the door, what she can do uh, to to meet people. I know it's a different situation in the U.K. than it is here, yeah. so it's hard kind of for us to 
talk about, but... Yeah, I mean, I would just... Any way you can be around it. I mean, most people I know that have gotten into it have, you know, showed enthusiasm. There was a guy, uh, Jeffrey Rowland, who also was a big mentor of mine, who, who on the film days, we used to be able to hang trims for editors, and it saved them time. So I would hang out and hang trims, you know, for free, just hanging out and learning at the hands of a master... And uh, I was fortunate enough that he was kind enough to sort of humor me and let me hang out. And his enthusiasm was infectious. And uh, he's a multiple award winner. So I was very fortunate to sort of learn from him over the years. And in, in, a, in a long story, in the symmetry of it all, we worked on Path to 9-11 together. And yeah. uh, so it's crazy that I started out hanging trims for someone and then was actually in the upfront credits along with him. That's you know, great. 15 or 20 years later. That's great. And Jeff, I've told the story before about my, me dropping film trims into coffee, and Jeffrey was the editor whose coffee I dropped the yeah. film into. And uh, that was actually working with Mitch as well. We yeah. worked on a TV movie. Yeah, Patrick and I were on a, a film called Lethal White Female. And uh, I was the assistant, Patrick was the apprentice, and Jeffrey was the editor. And. Uh, it was another one of those crazy schedules we were editing at CFI, if anyone's familiar. The building's not even there anymore, but we were in a, a cutting room at CFI and uh, had many adventures on that uh, on that job. Well, speaking of uh, best and worst moments, we should probably talk about like kind of your best and worst moments in editing. Mm -hmm. I talked about the, the film rolling into the coffee. Um, what's like... One of the worst stories you could tell us. Wow, there are so many. <laughs> I mean, if I can give advice to anyone that's out there looking to break in, the hardest thing I, I think is to develop thick skin because people will say things to you that, you know, make you want to punch them probably. And you're just going to have to say, okay, how do we fix it? You know, if yeah. you, don't, you don't like this, that's the worst cut in the history of television. Okay, what do you suggest? Instead of like, it works for me, <laughs> yeah. which is your first, you know, and then you get into an argument, which you're going to lose because you're arguing with someone who's probably seven levels up the food chain. <laughs> so, worst experiences, some of the worst experiences are, if anyone's familiar with the Avid, when you do changes in other versions, and then you go to play them back in what's the correct version, and then the notes aren't done... There's kind of a, a chill that goes up your spine as to where did you know the afternoon's work go. <laughs> so over time, you learn to manage your your versions a little bit better than that. Um, had to dissolve in the middle of a dialogue scene in a spelling screen. <laughs> I tried to do an audio dissolve, and the video channel was lit. So I had like a dissolve right in the middle of like a, I think it was I don't know a dinner table scene, and everyone kind of stopped the tape and. And I said it wasn't a, a matter of artistic expression. It was merely a mistake. Those kind of things happen. And if I can give anyone advice, it's just to try and weather the storm and tough out the bad times. I mean, I had some screening, like, where I got a set of notes that was pretty much said, you know, we cannot express our level of disappointment in this episode. <laughs> and they went into a litany of things that were wrong and <laughs> and uh you know brutal that's brutal. so yeah i mean in that particular scenario after you know basically that set of notes went out to all my bosses <laughs> and it wasn't directed exactly at me but it yeah. definitely was not a was not a highlight by any means and so i had to sit there for hours and hours and try and address what they were talking about and 
fortunately, we pulled the ship off the reef, and the studio exec who had basically railed me came back and said, wow, what an improvement, and we yeah. kind of all lived happily ever after. I've had a number of occasions like that where hopefully if you can be in tune with what people want and what they don't like, don't sort of lock yourself into your vision for a scene or your vision for the movie or your vision for the episode because it's a collaborative process. And I think the goal of any good or great editor is that when someone sits and watches that episode or that movie on the screen, they all feel like they made a contribution yeah, and that's probably I, th- I think that and when I say editing's half talent half politics that's the politics that I sort of cherish the most and work the hardest at is I don't dismiss anyone's notes I don't think oh that's stupid I'm not going to do it yeah. even if I can't do exactly what they're talking about maybe there's something in an earlier scene that I can set up that helps something that doesn't exist in a yeah. later scene and it's amazing when you kind of put your thinking cap on and and sleep on a set of notes how some solutions come that you when you first read them you just go i don't know how to do this <laughs> yeah never say never that's really it because most times i've said i don't have that or i can't fix that i had to eat my words yeah yeah so i don't say it anymore <laughs> it's amazing what you can do sometimes uh, you know I, there's a scene in the in the movie i've been working on they only shot one direction on this bus they never turned around and got the group of people on the bus they only got the main actor who's nia vartalos uh, in front, and they they didn't want to go back and shoot the other people. They said, "Can you steal them from other? Can you steal the reactions from other scenes?" I yeah. thought, "Boy, that's going to be tough." But you know, it worked out, and it's not. It you'd never know. You'd never know. I, I, I probably shouldn't be telling you because now you're going to look for it. That's right. Now, <laughs> now I'm. Uh, it'll be under the goofs on IMDb. Yeah, that's there. right. That's right. You'll see the clothes, the clothing change, and you'll see you know all that other stuff. Okay, Survivor. We talked with Ivan about kind of the workflow of that show, and it seemed like lots of editors, everyone has their special things they work on. What was your position in this workflow? How did you fit into it? Yeah, Survivor is... Uh, it's machine. They, yeah, it's well, Survivor's... It wasn't a machine when I started. What, really? Yeah, I mean, I was on season two, and now I guess they're well into the teens, I guess, in terms of season 17. 16 or 17. Yeah, I, they're way up there. Survivor's a great story. I had been doing a lot of nighttime soaps at Spelling. I'd done Beverly Hills 90210. I cut, I think, 34 episodes of that. And then I did a show called Titans, um, which was short-lived on NBC. And the nighttime soap was kind of dying... And all my credits were basically 90210, Titans, Pacific Palisades, Savannah, which was sort of Spelling's heyday, and that was what he was famous for, was for the nighttime soaps. But they kind of went away for a little while, and my job prospects were rather bleak. (laughs) So I kind of sent out an SOS to all my friends. And a friend, uh, Jim Page, who's a very well-known editor who cut Disturbia, he basically said, I don't know if you're interested, but... There's this Survivor gig, and I'd done a small boxing film with Jeffrey Rowland, who I mentioned earlier, and got a co-credit on it. So they said, do you have anything kind of action-y that you can show us? So I put together some clips from the boxing film, which was good enough to get me the interview. And then basically, I talked to uh, Cord Keller, who was directing the games, and... uh, Sort of one thing led to another, and I basically was willing to work nights, was willing to, you know, do whatever it took to sort of learn the drill, because it's a big jump. 
and a big leap for me. So I ultimately got the job. Uh, from there, I met Ivan. He works late at night, so we were working in two bays next to each <laughs> other. So I'd hear his music blasting. He, he was the show finisher, and I was basically a segment editor who did games. So we sort of developed a relationship and that I was doing notes for him and for the producers. And that's sort of how I fell into the fold there. As the lead editor on the episode, it was his job to incorporate all the segments being tribal council or games or, or other reality pods that other editors were working on and make them flow into the story of the entire episode. So you're talking about earlier about uh, how you'd get like a half an hour worth of footage. So sometimes... Uh on the on Survivor, they'd have multiple games, right? They'd have one or two games. If you ever get to do something that has 20 cameras on it, I mean, it's a wake-up call. Yeah. Because How much footage would you get on a show like that? Uh, just for your Probably section. just on my section for a six-minute game, you'd have a neighborhood of 10 hours of footage. Wow. That was pretty standard. And in those days, we basically... They didn't have the whole multicam laid out with a time code as well. For anyone that knows multicam, most multicams laid out by time code and, and grouped by time code. So if you group it by time code, you can pull up a, basically a, a multi-group window that has up to nine plates in it. And then if you toggle it, you could have up to 18 plates if you toggle between two nine plates. There's also ladders where you can kind of scroll between cameras. But they didn't really have it down that well. The time code, you know, mm-hmm. you'd get stuff from, like, one side of the island, the other side of the island. So, you know, the clocks weren't always, like, in sync. And you have little DV cams buried, you know, for, like, a particular, you know, piece of action. West cams for the course layouts, all kinds of things. So, and at that point, it was relatively new. They only had one season. So we were able mm-hmm. to be a little more creative and try some different things. But we ultimately, I don't know if people know the AVID that well, but we would stack them on video layers so you could toggle between video layers to see mm-hmm. what action okay. was happening between each video layer to keep track of it. As time went on, some of the assistants began grouping it all. But it's a monster undertaking in terms yeah. of finding boom mics, camera mics. You know, you're trying to find the best piece of dialogue for any given piece of action to sort of help the story. I mean, the stories are kind of told with music, with images, and with bites. There's basically an introduction, then the game, and then a wrap-up. And they're all different. I mean, so I think if you do those things, I mean, the guys that do them now, I have huge respect for. You know, you do a puzzle one week, you do tug-of-war, you do an endurance challenge. So if there was ever a boot camp for learning a variety of editing skills and sort of action-y genre, that was it. Did you have loggers at that time, people that went through and helped you find stuff? The the loggers primarily are involved with the reality. So if the reality Mm -hmm. overlapped into a game, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes we cheat a line from a contestant that Mm -hmm. said something like, oh, whatever you do, you know, make sure we win this, or... Okay. Sometimes you'd use a thing or two to reinforce the reality, but there really weren't any the dialogue of the of this. The right, reel. there were some logs of select shots in the early days that the directors and like the uh, assistant directors liked that I tried to incorporate into the games. But as time went on, those kind of went the way of uh, the covered wagon. Yeah. So Survivor was your first reality series that you did, and you seem to have gone on and done a few more reality series. Before you've gotten back into drama and and comedy, what else did you do in the reality vein? Well, I was sort of fortunate that I got into Survivor around 2001, and that's right when reality exploded. So Survivor was big. I think Amazing Race came along maybe a couple years later than that. The Bachelor, just a whole ton of them. 
So American Idol, I worked on uh, the first episode of that. Based on the Survivor credit, which we got an Emmy nomination for that, the show won the Emmy for Best Reality Competition Program. So from there, I met a lot of people that became successful in that genre, and I did uh, combat missions for Mark Burnett. I did the restaurant. Survivor kept going, so I did a number of seasons doing games. Basically, through the people I met, I was able to do a variety of uh, different reality programs, and between American Idol turned out to be pretty big, so that was a good credit. And um, I did American Fighter Pilot for uh, Ridley and Tony Scott. I built up a nice little resume, mainly action. Combat Missions was a hardcore military show with military exercises <laughs> that was pretty challenging to do. I think they're doing one now, Special Ops. I got a call on that's about guys that go into, you know, developing countries and, you know, fix the government or whatever. I mean, <laughs> so these guys that were on combat missions were just hardcore, wow. you know, Delta Force and... So I think that's one of the fun things about reality is instead of actors, you have contestants who come from all walks of life, and many are aspiring actors, but the guys on combat missions, you know, were real military people that I got to meet at a rap party and uh, got to kind of see things that I would never experience. Your experience runs the gamut of different genres, which is great because usually as an editor, you get stuck in one genre or another. You've gone from cutting these nighttime soaps to cutting these reality shows, and then you go from reality back into drama. I was very fortunate in that, for some reason or another, the spelling shows I did didn't hold a lot of weight, and there wasn't a lot of respect for 90210. Like, everyone thought, oh, Party Five's cool, you know, but 90210 is, for some reason, it wasn't the greatest credit. Uh, over time, it's become a better credit. You know, because it's now it's an icon. It's like the Brady Bunch or something. I mean, everyone's heard of it, and it's just timeless. After you went through this kind of reality portion of your career, you you got back. What was your first show back in, in the drama realm? A friend of mine, Barbara Gerard, who I'd known from Beverly Hills 90210, had become an editor on Dawson's Creek. And I guess at the end of one of the seasons, a couple of the editors had left to do pilots or other projects. So she recommended me. And then, coincidentally, also a director that I knew from 90210, David Semmel, who directed the Heroes pilot, American Dreams. He's done a lot of big television. He and Barbara both recommended me. So I got the interview. And between people thinking Survivor was extremely cool and the fact that 90210 had a lot of similarities from a character-driven nighttime soap about teenagers like Dawson's, I ended up getting the job. Path 9-11 is a show that a lot of people want to ask questions about. It was a show that brought an Emmy to you and also an Ace Eddie. Steven wanted to know about the workflow a little bit, and I did too as well. Uh, how was that footage shared between editors? So it originally started out with me and Jeffrey on the show, but there was so much footage that we just continually, no matter how much we cut and how hard we worked, we couldn't keep up. We were getting, I don't know, upwards of 10 hours of dailies a day for just, you know, weeks. And it was like probably a 90-day shoot. So wow. you can do the math on that. So then Eric Sears came on board probably a couple months later. Then David Hammond came on board. Then Brian Horn got promoted on the show, who had been assisting. And there were several other additional editors as well who who helped out. So when you're on that show, you're getting 10 hours of shot dailies a day. That was right. just what they were shooting. Right. How much archival footage was there? Well, the the drill on the show was it was a historical epic, 
we were trying to do JFK for television. Mm-hmm. You know, just a bold historical epic that mixed medium, 16 millimeter video. So whenever there was a story hole, we would go to news news footage and comb through that to see what Clinton might have said about, you know, this particular issue or they had Barbara Bodine. So we, we did a lot of research as well, even on stuff that wasn't in. So we kind of knew what the story was and and we're able to hopefully fill in any gaps between the timeline of the 93 Trade Center bombing and the attacks on 9-11 in 2001. It was a great show. It really Was it a four-hour miniseries? How long was the miniseries? The whole odyssey of the show was originally going to be three two-hour nights. Mm-hmm. And then there was just sort of curveball after curveball in the show, like a lawyer went through every word. And Anyway, the studio decided ultimately to air it in two nights, September 10th and 11th. On the fifth anniversary of 9-11, which was September 10th and 11th, 2006. So around June, they came in and said, oh, we got a new idea. (laughs) We're going to make it two nights. So we had to come up with a whole new structure for the film. Ultimately, I think, in my opinion, there was too much information in night one because it was... Originally, night one was the, the 93 Trade Center bombing and the hunt for Ramsey Youssef, the perpetrator. Which mm-hmm. was a, it was like a little episode or a big episode of 24. It set you up about, you know, the Trade Center wasn't a, a target for terrorists. They captured who they thought was the perpetrator, but he was really just part of the snake, and he was financed by bin Laden, which was the hook to take you to night two. But then when they compressed it all, it was a lot of information in a three-hour night of television. How was it working with all the other editors? Did you work on... Individual scenes? Did you work on episodes? Did you work in tandem? How did that work? Yeah, we all kind of worked on scenes, and because I was there from day one, I, I was able to first cut a lot of scenes. In the end, I I wasn't able to do the notes on all of my scenes because there wasn't time. You know, an eighth of a page could have five hours of dailies. Four 16 millimeter cameras were shot almost continuously, and almost every angle in the book that you can imagine slow motion, real speed. You know, crane shot, close-ups. We sort of had to weave through it almost like we were telling a documentary. David L. Cunningham, our brilliant director, and Joel Ransom, our Emmy-nominated DP, shot some beautiful, stylistic, kind of impressionistic images that we tried to collage together to create meaning without being too gory or graphic because Mm -hmm. the subject matter was uh, extremely graphic. You know, people jumping out of buildings and airplanes crashing just kind of it was really like abstract art yeah like you'd see a shot that you really liked and you'd say what can i put that up against that'll create meaning and and propel the story i really enjoyed it and it caused a lot of controversy with people as a lot of political shows do but was quite amazing no that's that's a whole story into itself basically i was off the show um, I had moved on to cut a television series called Runaway with Donnie Wahlberg, coincidentally. So it's my I've done three shows with Donnie now. Um, <laughs> so he's kind of like my good luck charm, but he's never met me. But um, I did the Kill Point, Runaway, and 9-11 with, uh, with Donnie, who's a great actor. But So I was going to do Donnie's next show, and in the meantime, I guess they ran the miniseries in uh, Washington, and some lobbyist that was affiliated with mm. the Clintons got a hold of it and didn't like the way Clinton was portrayed in the movie. So uh, an attack campaign came from the far left to the extent of uh, 
death threats on the writer, um, changing IMDb sites, you know, to make, uh, you know, people's agenda look like they're part of the Christian right. Or I'm really not an expert on everything that happened, but basically the far left attacked the film and uh, tried to keep it off the air. Night One was actually re-edited from... um, you know, notes came in. I'm not really sure, but from the Democratic Party that wanted things changed. Uh, that's amazing that that happened. So they didn't, as far as the ed- the re-editing went, what was re-edited? Basically, they uh, they pulled out clips of Clinton, you know, lying to the grand jury about Monica Lewinsky. And no one played Bill Clinton in the film. So he, right. it was re- a news clip. Yeah. And it was in timeline. And, I mean, I didn't research the film, but to my knowledge... Uh, it was accurate. I also cut a scene that uh, portrayed a botched uh, attempt to snatch Bin Laden out of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which was re-edited in the movie to uh, suit the Clintons as well. <laughs> uh, I voted for Clinton twice, but uh, after you re-edit my movie, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> so leave the editing to us, and you stick to politics. So, you know, it's a free country. Let people watch and decide for themselves. It's too bad that, you know, a political party can put enough pressure on a studio to change a movie. And I think it was one of the boldest films ever put on television. I hope the Disney family were able to do more things like that. But unfortunately, because of the controversy and all the pressure, it may be harder for studios to make hard-hitting political Dramas. It happens all the time. The Reagans. I have a friend. Who the Reagans was the same out. story. Yeah, the, they got pushed off to cable. Right, it yeah. didn't even air on CBS. Right, it got yeah. moved to USA, or I don't know all the details. Yeah. But fortunately for us, they never attacked Night Two, which was about the Bush administration, which was just as hard hitting. <laughs> but I suspect that the Republicans went, "Oh, the Democrats hate this. It must be good." <laughs> and Rush Limbaugh, like said, see, this proves Clinton's responsible for 9-11. So, I mean, you can't imagine how oh, crazy yeah. it got, but it got to the point where Everyone we, were afraid, in a we were afraid that the movie wasn't going to air. And um, wow. thank God it did. Thank God Night 2 didn't get re-edited because that's the one that, you know, we won the awards for and got the most acclaim and is presented to the public the way we intended it. You went on to do The Kill Point, which I... Didn't even know you were doing it until it aired. I was watching with my wife, and there's your name. And the kill point was actually, I thought it was very ambitious. I saw that and thought the quality of that was so filmic. I don't know how much footage you got on that, how much time they had to shoot it, but it it could have it was good enough to 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 be in movie theaters. Well, thanks so much. A lot of credit goes to. Steve Schill, our magnificent director who's done Deadwood, Sopranos, Mm -hmm. The Tudors. James DeMonico wrote the first two hours. He wrote The Negotiator, so he knows a lot about hard-hitting urban dramas and hostage negotiations and things of that nature. So that was a huge challenge, and it was fun to sort of break on my own. I'd been kind of one of the guys on 9-11, which is great to be part of the band, but it was kind of time to try out my solo career a little bit, and (laughs) try and stand on my own two feet and take something from start to finish and prove that I could do it myself and tell a good story and make something, you know, successful and maximize the footage. We were trying to do an eight-hour dog day afternoon for television. And um, on that note, uh, two-time Emmy winner Randy Morgan uh, helped out and also Don Kelly, who I'd worked with at Spelling, 
helped out on the show with me too. But I primarily did most of the editing on the first two hours, which was the bank robbery, a SWAT breach, and a lot of the setup. How long did they shoot that film in? Do you know? What was the length? The, it was a 64-day shoot. Wow. And it was a block shooting, so I don't know people understand. Basically, they they shot it like, like an eight-hour feature, similar, I guess, to the two last Pirates of the Caribbean that they shot as one movie. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're in the same location, you shoot scenes from, you know, all the hours. You know, if you're in the bank, you know, you try and shoot all the hostage stuff, and then you try to release actors as you release hostages so you can, <laughs> you know, get them off payroll or whatever that was. Yeah. Um, for Spike TV, it was a very big budget, ambitious project, and uh, Donnie Wahlberg was always amazing. John Leguizamo, Emmy yeah. winner. I was fortunate to work with him. He was great and kind of the... Al Pacino reprisal of Attica. How many hours of footage a day did you usually get for that show? Yeah, the level of footage on that wasn't nearly like 9-11. So we were probably getting, I don't know, two or three hours a day. But still, it was just me cutting for about the first six weeks. And then uh, Don Kelly was helping me out some. And then Randy Morgan came on. So how long of a schedule, so people can get an idea of of like a, a, a show like that, which was how many parts did it have? Five It parts? was eight hours, and it aired in six parts. It was a two-hour movie. Four one-hour episodes and then a two-hour finale. I can't tell you how brutal the schedule was on that. I almost had to finish the first two-hour before Steve even wrapped production. Mm. He was still shooting or just wrapped shooting when we had to lock picture. So they flew him home from Pittsburgh where it was shot for two Saturdays and worked with me. And uh, thank God he was happy with... You know, the way I was doing it, um, because there really wasn't a lot of time for him to roll up his sleeves on the first two hours because he was shooting and I was cutting in LA. So it was fun in that um, Randy Nelson, who was the associate producer, and myself and some of the post guys were our own little guerrilla unit, kind of putting together playback and cutting everything and sending scenes out to production and, you know, picking music and just anything we could to try and keep the ball rolling. They started shooting, I believe, in late March or early April, and we aired July 22nd, the first two hour. Wow. So, very tough schedule. Tough schedule, very fast. Yeah. One of the questions I had from from a listener, Constantine, was on a miniseries or a television series. Do you want to know about choosing the music? You're cutting in, like everyone else, temp music. Um, Does a lot of your stuff go to final? Do you find that things you choose get in the movie, or do they have... uh, usually have music supervisors that kind of yeah, feed you um, stuff. Every situation is different. Uh, on Survivor, they have a huge music library. So if uh, we tracked a particular game well, it would air that way. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the added pressure with reality is you have to make it good enough to air. In mm-hmm. dramatic, a lot of times, you have to make it good enough to screen for the studio and then hopefully it goes up several notches on the mixing stage with composer music, new songs, things like that. But I've been fortunate enough over the years to find some great songs that just nothing ever worked better than. And on a Summerland, I I found a John Mayer song that wasn't one of his bigger hits and didn't even really know it was John Mayer, (laughs) as dumb as I was at the time. And I put it in, and it was one of those scenes with just kind of encapsulated the whole episode and, you know, kind of built a thread between all the characters and what they were doing in the last act. And just nothing ever worked as well. 
and we ended up laying out like 25 grand to get the song because it really worked. On Greek, which I'm working on now, um, we have a music supervisor that really um, is very involved in every song that goes into the show. So they want to make sure that what the producers hear in the temp, they get in the final. You had this period of time where you worked on lots of action stuff, and now you're on Greek, which is drama and comedy. Yeah. How do you like working in back in comedy? I'm loving the comedy, you know. It's fun to not have the world end, you know, in, in, in your scene you're doing or have people on fire or airplanes crashing into buildings, you know. It, it's great to try and make a difference in the world, you know, uh, on a dramatic level, um, you know, in the kill point, trying to make a point about, you know, the war and the casualties of war. In this case, you know, it's hopefully about entertaining people. And, you know, there's still always an emotional anchor in every show. On Greek, it's a comedy, so we try not to go too dark so that we can always keep it light for the comedic moments on the show. So it's a big change in gears, you know. And, and I think with comedy editing, I think the rules are a little bit easier to play by because it's, it's mainly timing, timing the jokes, timing the lines. And I think with a drama, like, the best dramatic editors that I've worked with. I mean, John Martinelli comes to mind, who's a legend, got an ACE Lifetime Achievement Award. I assisted briefly, but I mean, the guy's stuff was just so smooth. That's how you win four Emmys. With comedy, I think one of the traps you can fall into is cutting it too elegantly. You know, you can make something really elegant that isn't funny or entertaining, and it's like all the cuts work, but you're not getting the laughs or it doesn't have the energy or the juice that you want out of it. And I'm finding just, this is only my second episode uh, that I'm working on right now. I'm working on the season finale of season one, which is a big spring break show with like concerts and all kinds of big scenes. And I'm just finding that cut for the timing, cut for the line, cut for the best take and try and massage out the little bumps of, uh, you know, continuity or things like that, that the people that are fans probably aren't watching and, you know, maybe a few of the editing aficionados will throw their remote controls at the TV and uh, have a bad word to say about how about what my editing used to look like. But I mean, I mean, the the bottom line is I try and build something that's very smooth and clean. But then in the process, I try and weave in takes that you know might not be the best match or the cleanest cut, but they're the best line. Right. And, and I think ultimately you have to let, no matter what genre you're in, let the performances drive the drama and uh, regardless of continuity, if you can steal a line, put it in someone else's mouth to make something smooth, do whatever you can to keep it from bumping, but always let performance uh, be king. You think then that comedy is is harder, easier? Do you think that it's just a different, a different uh, sort of editing? You may be the best person to answer that question because <laughs> what I'm doing isn't really pure comedy right. in plain sight is a show that's going to air on usa this summer that is kind of a like a lethal weapon action comedy moments of comedy moments of drama trying to keep the tone on that show was the challenge because it's like the mummy you know you ha it has to be fun and light but there have to be stakes mm -hmm. so in an action comedy if there are no stakes the action doesn't play it can become goofball. So we tried to keep the comedy powder dry. In Greek, you know, when you have a scene like bowling for pledges where they're rolling guys on skateboards, <laughs> you know, into uh, kids sitting on high chairs, I think kind of anything goes in, in that scenario. I think we try to balance sort of some broad comedy with some of the stakes of growing up, 
There's also somewhat of a desperate housewives scenario in the in the sorority house where there's a pecking order and there's like the president and there's the pledges and so we try to play up the comedy between the hierarchy of the sorority and the fraternity element is hopefully at its best like old school or animal house where anything goes and just the crazier the better drinking partying girls and uh entertaining and uh a lot of people are watching so we're thrilled that hopefully uh we're on the right track here so you were talking about the show in plain sight that show was for usa network right yeah and you've worked for like abc you've worked for fox i've worked i think for every network at one point or another every major is there a big difference between working on a show with a major network or working on a on a cable show well i mean the one thing i like about the cable shows i think they're a little bit edgier i mean Mm -hmm. i worked on the saving grace pilot which was really really raw i mean holly hunter was really raw and the script was really raw and i don't think it was the type of show you could they wanted it sort of edited raw there were jump cuts and things to turn to make it a little bit more edgy and on network you look at most of the big network shows abc Grey's anatomies great songs beautiful people and the cable shows sometimes the budgets aren't as big the shooting schedule's not as long so there's some challenges in terms of trying to give it a, a big look, you know, when you don't necessarily have every shot you might have if you had a longer shooting schedule. But I find that a lot of the Emmy-nominated shows now are cable shows. It seems like that they're taking more chances with those shows. On a cable, if you can get two or three million viewers, you know, that are just really into what you're doing, like Battlestar Galactica is considered a big hit, probably two million viewers. Greek, uh, young girls, teenage girls love it. And uh, that's the kind of audience that kept Dawson's on the air, kept 90210 on the air. And I guess that's that major word, demographics. If you can tie into a key demo that advertisers like, do well with that group, you can direct your product at them and uh, hopefully make a good drama. So is there anything else that you haven't done yet that you really want to do? I love historical epics, so... Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I was a sword and sandals a thousand years ago. (laughs) But, you know, love Braveheart, love, uh, you know, Gladiator and those kinds of films. So I'd love to do a a historical epic. 9-11 was a historical epic, but it was really only five years ago. I'd love to do, you know, even Shakespeare in Love, something like that, that just kind of took people to a different time and place and something like that would be exciting to me. Well, I wanted to get a chance to get in the last few questions from some uh, listeners Constantine wanted to ask, uh, how do you go through tons of footage and choose the good footage in the limited amount of time you have? Especially on a show like 9-11, where you're getting 10 hours a day. How do you get through all that stuff? Well, on 9-11, unfortunately, we never made a schedule. (laughs) And uh, as time went on, we never had any sponsors for the show. So we we were originally supposed to air in February, then we got moved to May, and then we got moved to September. So... I mean, thank God that happened because it wouldn't have been the same movie that aired in February. We never would have been able to go through all the film. It would have been kind of a half-ass editing job. On that film, I mean, we really combed through every single take, every piece. And what I would do was put indicators and notes on shots that I liked and gradually come up with a game plan. Hopefully it's like writing a story. You come up with that shot that's the first sentence in your first paragraph, and if each each scene is a paragraph and each act is a chapter, hopefully by the end you've got a whole story. 
So each shot is either, you know, a piece of the vocabulary that you're trying to tell. You know, in the old days, the guys on film, I thought the best ones were like great chess players. They could look at the dailies, see the whole board and put it together. Mm -hmm. I worked with people that paper clipped and never even spliced stuff or looked at it and and cut a scene. And I mean, I I never had that kind of ability. Um, I don't don't know many people that do these days. For anyone that doesn't know what that is exactly, can you kind of explain what that is? Yeah, when I was an apprentice editor on Cagney and Lacey, there was a another Emmy winner, Jim Gross, who basically looked at the shots, made splices on a splicer, paper clipped them, I spliced them together in the next room, and then he would run the show, you know, without really even seeing what he'd done until it had been spliced together by someone else in another room. Wow. Myself, I kind of like look at three or four cuts, say, well, that one's too short, that one's too long, what do I want to do next? compare performances, compare takes, you know, and I really kind of massage scenes into shape. A lot of the people from the film days, I'm sure Michael Kahn's probably this way. He's worked with Spielberg forever. He knows what he likes. He knows the shots he's looking for. He can really see that. And hopefully over time you work with the same directors, there becomes an unspoken vocabulary where you know what the person wants. I've worked with Michael Lang, who's done The O.C. and Dawson's Creek and brothers and sisters, Eli Stone, and he's directing the Greek right now. So I've worked with him enough that I know what he likes, I know what he's looking for, and, um, you know, he trusts me to put it together as well as possible and look at all the film and make good choices. And if he doesn't like something, we change it, but he believes in, you know, what I'm doing. The great challenge with television is sort of getting the director's vision on film and then inevitably it's somewhat of a producer's medium so Mm -hmm. trying to maintain the core of that director's vision while allowing the writers and the producers to you know get what they had intended on the page on the screen and the places where you know you're a little off track so Matteo wanted to ask about editing reels he wanted to know how necessary a reel is do you have any feelings on on the usefulness of reels yeah, reels are kind of a dicey <laughs> subject, and they're sort of a burr in many editor saddles. Because if you're a DP putting together a reel of great shots, you know, if you're doing a fantasy and you you know you put Danny Elfman music and you put a bunch of cool stuff that you hopefully have shot, you're not really selling people on rhythm or pacing. Whereas an editor's reel, you almost have to hand sculpt something for what they're looking for. To get on in plain sight. I knew Paul Stupin and Drew Maddich, two of the producers from Dawson's Creek. They liked me, but I didn't know David Maples, the creator, and I didn't have a lot of comedy experience. So I called through all my comedy scenes from Dawson's Creek and, you know, some of the other shows I'd done, put it together to convince him that I had a good sense of timing and and things like that that hopefully he was looking for. I looked at the pilot of In Plain Sight to see what they were doing tried to think of what I had that was in that vein that they might like and put that on a reel. Hopefully you have a a body of work. You could kind of bookend your reel with like the scope of what you've done. If you've worked with some big actors or you've worked with some high profile shows or things that people might recognize, you could maybe put together 15 or 20 seconds or 30 seconds at the top of just kind of a little montage or splashes of images that people go, oh, he worked on that or she worked on that. Cool. And then then you hopefully show them things that are a little more specific 
an anchor that might be scenes that relate to what they want. And that takes me into the question that everyone has, which is getting jobs. Yeah. It's one thing to get a job coming right out of school. You're going to start as a PA. You're going to start as a runner. But how do you go from that first job to the next job? Yeah, I mean, getting work is half of the job. I mean, I don't have an agent. I'm my own agent. I try to make contacts, see people, let people see my work, for example. Sent some of the DVDs of the Kill Point out to some of my friends and colleagues who missed it because I was really proud of it and, you know, let them see that I did this show. And, you know, maybe half of them are watch it or less, but it's in a nice box and it, it's got good reviews and it looks professionally done. Or if I did something that I was really proud of, I might, you know, email a few friends to say, check it out, try and watch the work that my friends are doing so that I'm up to speed on what other people are doing. I think the main thing is, is just really try to make good edits, tell good stories, and be easy to work with in the room. You know, on the Kill Point, for example, there was no schedule, so I was in there with the studio, with the producers, with the director, with the writer, and I had to let everyone feel that they were contributing to the final product because we didn't really have a time for everyone to have their own pass. And not everyone agrees on every note or every idea, but when that DVD goes out with the changes, if they don't see something that's attempting to address what's bothering them, you get some blowback in terms of, why didn't you do my note? If we're told to address an issue, whether it's changing a piece of music, a performance, or pacing something better, I really try to make every note work as best I can. If people are on, have differences of opinions, I try to address the note to some extent so that they feel that there's been a compromise made. And I think that's really the key, because when you get your next job, they're going to call your last employer mm -hmm. and say, how was Mitch to work with? And they'll either say... Boy, Mitch was great, or he was difficult, and he, you know what I mean? He got in a fight with the director. <laughs> Editors really have very little power, but a great deal of responsibility. And you have I, to interpret the notes sometimes. Sometimes you get notes that if you read them, you you think, well, I don't know how to do this. What What's the spirit behind the note? What right. What does this note really mean? Really what they, they're not, maybe if they're if they're having a problem with one aspect in the show, it's really not about that. It's about something related to it, and if you change that, it will give the appearance that that note's been done. It's like if anyone out there has ever taken an exam. You look at the exam, inevitably, you don't know the answer to the first question, <laughs> and you start to freak out. And hopefully, as you read more of the exam, you collect your senses, and you start <laughs> knowing a few of the answers, and maybe by the end of the test, you go back to the first one, and you know the answer. And notes are usually like that. Your initial reaction is you're completely overwhelmed and you don't know where to start. <laughs> and then hopefully you go, well, maybe I do have that shot after all. Or maybe, you know, maybe I can change this music cue and it'll feel more romantic and add a beat to that look. Or hopefully the ideas start to tumble through the process. And to me, that's it. The adventure is the process. You have to believe in your soul that everyone's making the movie better. And in the end, the best picture will hit the screen, you know? Yeah. Mitch, thanks so much for inviting us into your cutting room. It was great to talk to you. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or discuss before we, we broke off here? Yeah, I, I know a lot of people out there are trying to break in and start out. Yeah. Everyone has their own unique talent that they can bring to the table or, or a project or the business. One of the harder things to believe in starting out is yourself. As uh, the great Conrad Hall once said... <laughs> They have everything else but you. It's better to be 
original, for better or worse, then sort of be a cheap imitation of your favorite editor, your favorite filmmaker, your favorite movie. Be true to your soul as an artist. Just always work hard. Try to get along with everyone and collaborate, and hopefully the chips will fall and good things will happen. Well, there it is. Thanks again to Mitch, and thanks for listening. If you have a chance, swing by filmediting.com. Check out the podcast page. There we've got a map, a Frapper map you can link to. Put a little pin in the map. Let us know where you're listening from. Also, if you have a chance, go to iTunes and put a review in there for us. That always helps. Also, if you're in need of web hosting, Bluehost is a great hosting site. They offer really inexpensive web hosting with a lot of bandwidth and a lot of uh, space. So if you're in need of a web hosting site, go to the podcast page, and there's a link there for Bluehost. If you click the link and order from them, I do get a few bucks, so that's also helpful. That's it, and hopefully we'll have another one of these soon. Thanks. Thanks.